Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Yashia Strike is an investor and brand specialist working with leading entrepreneurs and management teams to help them put the customer at the centre of what they do. He's part of a team of brand experts at Piper, who describe themselves as the investment partner of choice for ambitious entrepreneurs growing brands that consumers love. Piper's investments include businesses such as Mindful Chef, Bloom and Wild, Flatiron, Proper, Bottle Green, Maxi Muscle, Fourth Glade, Barking Heads, Bowden, Monica Venander and Orla Bar Brown. Yasha and I recorded this episode before the COVID-19 outbreak, but I think you'll learn a huge amount of interesting stuff about choosing investors, how to fundraise and business in general. Yasha and I hopped in a call this week to record a 10-minute update on how the COVID-19 crisis is affecting the fundraising and investment in the industry, and if you're a growing brand, what you should be focusing on right now. And you can hear that update at the end of this episode. Yasha Strike, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thanks so much for calling in today. Where are you calling from? Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Calling in, I'm actually, we're based in Notting Hill, which is our lovely offices in, in a place where you probably wouldn't associate with having an investor, but I think it works very well for us. Yeah, not at all. I mean, and certainly your office doesn't look anything like I could imagine. I, I thought you were calling in from the back bedroom, as we'd say back home. So tell us about Piper. Who is Piper? What do you do? And what are the kind of things you do every day? Yeah. So very simply, Piper, we hope, is the partner of choice for ambitious entrepreneurs who want to grow their businesses into what we call brand legends. And Mm. and brand legends for us, that's quite quite a nebulous word, but it, it means growing brands that live on beyond our time with them. So brands that can be as special and innovative at 100 million, 200 million, 300 million turnover as they are at five or 10 or 15 million, which is the stage that that we typically get involved with. And do you have any examples, any examples of brand legends that you've been involved with? Yeah, so Piper's been on for around 35 years now. Wow. Yeah, so in that time, Piper's backed more than 40 brands. And it's been great seeing some of those brands go on and you know, to much greater things. Um, so for example, Bowdoin, non-food and drink brand, but Bowdoin was a fantastic success story. It's now a 300 plus million pound business, equally you know, uh, half the business is actually not in the UK, great business in the UK and Germany, really strong lifestyle brand still owned by Johnny. And I think that's a great example, I think of a business that will live on. All of our Brown, which is a, we sold to Chanel about a year and a half ago, which is a lovely luxury brand, which I think, you know, is a great home for a business that I think all of our brand will be a brand that's going to be around in 100 years' time. And that that for us is what we call success. I don't know that brand. Can you tell our listeners what it is? Yeah, all of our brand is a luxury resort wear brand, men's, which started off in swim shorts. So when I tell you these swim shorts cost 150 to 250 pounds, you might gasp. Yeah. <laughs> but they are beautiful shorts. They are the best swim shorts you'll get. And they're a lot of the, a lot of them are kind of digitally printed with Getty images. Um I'm still laughing at the luxury resort wear um category because I did not know that there was such a thing as the luxury resort wear category. That tells you a little bit about my life, yeah. which is more uh, to do with baby sick and toddler tantrums than luxury uh, resort wear. There is also there is also a, a, a category within that which is you know men wanting to look great whilst uh walking Strutting. around, <laughs> around the swimming pool yeah maybe not even maybe not even swimming but strutting sure yeah. and I, I'm not laughing at anyone who wants to do that or wear those things I'm just jealous basically exactly. um, okay so that's another of your your brand legends so what do you call yourselves because one of the things I'd love to do with this episode is for myself but also for anyone out there who's listening and I'm imagining you know my listeners are not only in startups but they're also in big packaged goods companies at different points of their career. And I think, you know, there's so much talk about funding and rounds and seed capital and venture capital and investors. And, and it's all very sexy and and quite difficult to understand for many people. But it's one of those things where you're a bit too embarrassed to speak up at the table and say, I don't really know what you're talking about there, but I don't want to look like a bit of an idiot. So I'd love at the end of this this interview to have a kind of a mental map in my head 
right, of how all this works, what all the terms mean, how you guys, you know, are different. Obviously, it's your opportunity to talk to our listeners in terms of how you're different, uh, but really have a new mind map of how this all works. So what do you call yourselves and, and who do you look for? Let me start by giving you that mind map. Brilliant. So then I'll tell you kind of where, where people like us fit in within that. So and one, and, and I think the easiest way to think about it is, is almost kind of hierarchy. So right, right at the bottom, it's you've started a business as a founder, you need a little bit of money, maybe 10, 20,000 pounds. And so you start by scrambling around your friends and family. Yeah. Met businesses that have got slightly different caliber of friends and family where they've managed to raise substantially more than that. But that's typically the, the, the starting. Um, or you might get some grants, right? There's grants available. Grants available from the government. Yeah, exactly. Um, the next step, once you meet, you've seen the business is growing and doing well, is you need a, a bigger slog of money where perhaps you need actually maybe 100,000 or 200,000 pounds to take to take the next level. And that's where angels come in. Mm-hmm. And angels are great because if you get the right angel, they give you both money and expertise. Yeah. The great the food and drink community is that there is a real there's a great ecosystem of uh founders ceos chairman operations directors that have, that have been part of some really successful growth stories in food and drink that have, and have made decent amounts of money that now are want to reinvest back back into um, food and drink brands and so getting one of those on board or a collection of those on board with their money and expertise can be can be really fun can drive a real fundamental change in a business. Yeah, we talked to Giles Brook in in the first episode of this series, and he was he was really enlightening in terms of that subject. Yeah, and he's yeah he's he's fantastic, and um and there are quite a few of those types of people. Once you get to a level where you think actually I need to raise a million, two million plus suddenly it just it becomes harder to raise that from private individuals okay no matter how affluent somebody is they're typically not willing to you know give that much of their personal wealth to one investment okay because they've got that kind of investment portfolios typically so once once you get to a level where you to raise one two million plus that's where you get to institutional investors and the institutional investors are there, there are different types of them. If you want to raise slightly smaller amounts, these are venture, these, this is venture capital. And most venture capital love more digital techie businesses. Why? It's just it's how they're they're set up, both from a from a from a cultural perspective, but actually what they what they're used to investing in. They, they want to invest in fast growing businesses. And t- before before they came into the consumer world, they were used to investing in businesses that had kind of exponential growth. And then they realized, oh, wow, there's this thing called e-commerce and you can sell online and they've got a website. And that's kind of like tech, really, even though, you know, they're basically consumer brands with a website. Okay. So they came into this world try, trying to take the expertise they had in more tech business into the consumer world. With, so it's where they came from. That's where they, the beginnings they came from. I think the leap for them to the more kind of the kind of food and drink product based businesses is much tougher. Right. Actually, there are not many VCs or smaller institutional investors who invest in food and drink. There is a bit of a dearth of of investment in, in, in that space. Simply because they don't get the return they're looking for and also they don't think they but they don't have the expertise or the experience in that field, right? Yeah, it's a combination, but I think you have more in the US, but actually in the UK, it's 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 not great. Okay. It's harder and slower to build smaller, more product-based kind of non-e-commerce food and drink businesses. And so the VCs are just not attracted to it. The, the growth is not sexy enough for them. If you if, if as a founder you can break through that and get your brand turning over five, ten million pounds, suddenly you get into the kind of private equity space. Which is where we where we sit, but even that's divided up into where we sit, which is kind of growth capital, and then there's the kind of the bigger boys, which is private equity, 
growth capital is people like us who uh, we we come in and we say, look, we're experts in what we do. We'll take a minority stake somewhere between 20 and 40 percent. Some uh, some of the time, uh, we'll even do cash out. So we'll we'll help the entrepreneurs de-risk a little bit. Here's here's some little reward for all the hard work you've done, and here's some money into the business. Let's partner up and let's really drive growth and create something really valuable here. Above us are the kind of the real private equity. Kind of when when people think about the, those words, they think about the the types of investors that buy out businesses. So they're typically. A lot of the time, we are the last entrepreneurial phase. After that, the, the proper private equity basically buy the businesses and they can do whatever they want with them. Just one really quick question before we get into the more interesting stuff for, for our listeners. But is there any difference in terms of where the source of the money comes from between VCs, growth funds, or, you know, like you guys and private, the other bigger private equity? I mean, you know, where does all the cash come from? Yeah, so there's there is a lot of money swirling swirling around in the world. There isn't, and so something like family offices, which are you know sit, they can invest same levels of VCs and as private equity are they're rich families who made money in it could be in food and drink, sure. but it could be something else, and they just want to reinvest. Their investment horizons are much longer, so they because they're in money, they can hold these businesses for. 10, 20 years for as long as they want. So that money comes, is their own money. And then with, in terms of venture capital and private equity, the big, the big chunks of money come from a variety of sources, but probably not very sexy places like, um, you know, maybe pension funds. You know, we have, you know, perhaps a U, uh, some of the US universities have big endowment funds. You know, they, they invest in some of the biggest investors in the world. Um, and, and the kind of the, the the smaller amounts come from actually high net worths who, you know, in our case, for example, who've done something interesting. Maybe ex-founders, CEOs have done something in, in in consumer, also invest in our funds. Okay, so you set up a fund, and people can invest in your fund, and then they expect you to manage it, just like any any other funding opportunity in on the markets. Yeah, but it's it's a close. So our fund is a closed fund. Okay, what does that mean? As in, you know, as a general member of the public, you couldn't invest in our fund. Okay. But we pick and choose our investors based on kind of help, people that help with our network or people that can provide, you know, big, big sums of money. Um, whereas there are investors called VCTs. There are lots of them out there, which um, actually anyone can, can invest in. And they also invest in, in high growth businesses. Okay. So imagine you're a food or drink or packaged goods company who has grown to the stage where they have, you know, used up their family and friends favours and they have had an angel or two. And now they're at the stage where they think they need one, two, three, four, five million to grow. Okay, and they come to you and they're probably going to see other people like you, too, aren't they, to to decide who they're going to who they're going to get the money from. What are the criteria that that business should use in terms of who they should choose? Or is it you guys who choose them? How does it work? So m- most people will think that founders are constantly pitching to investors to get money from them. Um, a bit like Dragon's Den, because that's just what people are familiar with. And that is true to a certain extent. But actually, there are not many great brands out there or great businesses out there. And so the best businesses uh, are really attractive to a broad range of money and a broad range of investors. And so actually, as investors, we spend a lot of our time trying to show to the founders why we would be great partners, why we would add real value. That those words partner and added value are bombarded around a lot. You'll probably hear it. If you go to any investor, they'll probably use those words. So I think as a founder, it's it's really important to really unpick what what being a partner really means for that investor and what added value really entails. So what does it entail? For you guys, let's talk about because obviously that's all you can... Yeah, so I mean, for us, because... Piper, Piper started actually as a brand strategy consultancy 30 odd years ago. We're naturally brand, that's our, that's our heartland. We're brand experts. And so people partner with us because we understand brand, we understand customer, and we, we've grown brands. That's all 
That's basically all we've ever done. And so when we, what we call added value is where we divide into three things. We, we talk about people, we, call it, we talk about digital, and we talk about brand. So with people, we have a people expert in-house who helps our brands think about how to grow the team. And that's something that's really relevant to all businesses. How do you grow the team ahead of the growth almost? Because almost by the time you need somebody, it's probably too late. I always ask that question to our, our interviewees during during the Brand Growth Heroes episodes, which is, when do you know to make that call? Do you spend the money before the growth or do you wait for the growth to spend the money on your next hire? Really tough, right? It, it, it's, it's a decision that everybody's, every founder needs to make all the time. And I think what's helpful is if you've had investment, you can invest ahead of the curve. Right. If you're growing organically, it's much harder to make that call. That was one of the things I was going to ask you was, you know, why bother getting money at all? And that might sound like a really stupid question, but should your growth not be able to fund your growth? It depends on your ambition as a founder. I think all investment starts from what, what is the ambition of the founder and where do they want to get this business? And that's really important to understand that. And a lot of that, that's a real personal it's a real personal thing. But until you understand that, then you don't know what their appetite is for, for growth. But in really simple language, just to kind of really break that down, is what you're saying that either you can fund your own growth and grow really slowly, or if you want to grow really quickly, you might want to get some money in from somewhere else. Is that the bottom line? That, that is the bottom line. I think it's very hard yeah, to, to, yeah, to have both things, right? To grow quickly without investment. In today's world, I think you could you could do it in the past where it was probably less competitive. In today's world, I think it's virtually impossible. Unless you've got really high margins, in which case you could fund your own growth, right? If you are one of this handful of very high margin businesses, potentially more e- kind of e-commerce, direct-to-consumer driven, then yes, you can. But even that, the, you know, the you've got to spend that money on digital marketing. And what we're seeing in digital marketing is that cost of customer acquisition is just shooting through the roof. Right. You know, the, 10 years ago or five years ago, it was great. If you're starting a brand, it was brilliant. You know, you could give Mark Zuckerberg a small amount of money and you get really good returns. Now you give Mark, you know, the same pot of money, you get, you get very little back. And so it's just much more expensive to grow online. Okay. Sorry, we, we, we digress. I, I pulled you off track there. But I just really wanted to understand that. So where we were was you were saying that you add value in three different ways. The first was people. Yeah. So people is the first and that's relevant to all businesses. The second one is digital. Mm-hmm. So we have a digital expert in-house. He actually used to be um, e-commerce director at a brand that we we invest in called Maxi Muscle. Was, sure. Was a brand Great brand. Revolutionized sports nutrition. And then he, he came on board Um Piper and he, he helps our businesses from a digital um, and systems perspective. Um, once again, something that all brands really need help with. And the third third area, which we call brand, is probably slightly a little bit more, more complicated. And for us, brand is about help helping the helping the founders do two things. One of them is actually getting what the brand stands for and means onto paper. Because actually a lot of the founders, it's mainly in their heads. And sure. actually they might have problems actually communicating that to their team, to consumers. To their agencies. To their agencies, everyone, exactly. And, and the story needs to be coherent and the same in all, wherever you tell it. And that's, that's a process we, we go through. Um, we also make sure that the customer is at the heart of every decision that the business takes. I mean, when when a founder start a business, very well, all of the time they they grow it through instinct, and a lot of the time the best businesses are started by people who are are the customer themselves. But naturally, as a business grows, you lose track of, of the customer because suddenly you're selling to you know tens of thousands of people instead of instead of a hundred people. And actually, the customers are not like you, and so for us, we are we like to spend a lot of time with our founders thinking through who is the customer? 
can we do some more research to really understand that customer, what their drivers are, what their motivations or their perceptions are of the brand? And that will dictate how the brand grows as well. Okay. So it sounds like your offer in in terms of what Piper can do is quite different to what I imagined a institutional investor would offer a brand in the packaged goods space. Are you different to other institutional investors or or is this just what, what people do in that space? I I hope we are different. I I think we are different. I think the biggest difference starts actually at the the, the very basic is that we are specialists in what we do, whereas the vast majority of investors are not specialists. Yeah, okay. So they might be investing in a manufacturing business one day, in in a food and drink business next day, and then in a software business after that. And so you can't be an expert across different... um, and and it's funny you should say that because that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this interview was because it I've really struggled with the idea that there seems to be as you say so much money floating around out there and uh, there's an awful lot of kind of energy and passion and sexiness around investing into food and drink and packaged goods at the moment whether it's on TV or online or whether it's accelerators or you know it's it's all go at the moment and and there seems to be kind of um, adjacencies in terms of s- industry adjacencies springing up, whether it's, you know, um, schools uh, for a food business or packaged good business or, um, I don't know, groups of, I don't know what I'm going to say and I'm going to cut this bit, bit out, but basically it, there's a huge amount of energy in that space right now. And I'm thinking to myself, how can all of these people add value to founders of um, packaged goods companies? What should packaged goods companies founders be looking for when they go out there looking for some because somebody else's money is going to come into their business and they're going to give away some of their business right Mm. and they've got to be really careful who they get into bed with so what should they be looking for if i if i was a founder i would naturally want to partner with somebody who's who's done it before and you've got to think about when i say done it before it's not as simple as food and drink it's about thinking about the channel as well so if i'm a food and if i'm a huel or i'm thinking about mindful chef which is just one of our investments i would be more thinking about do those people understand yes they understand brand yes they understand food and drink but actually do they do understand e-commerce yeah which is very different if you're growing a, a more of a product grocery brand actually do those investors know how to grow brands through that channel do you know what I'd want to know? I, I would want to know, does the investor know what it takes to sell one more unit in the channel that I'm selling in, right? So mm. if that's food service, for example, does that investor know that it takes an extra pair of feet in the street in a particular region to call into these quick serve, service restaurants that are all independent and, you know, um, make sure that sh- the chef knows that uh, he's he's being influenced to sell, to put more of my mayonnaise on his burgers, on his burger menus, because that's what it takes to sell another bottle. And, and, and I kind of think, surely there aren't that many investors out there that can bring that to the party. But then I suppose they're able to, to make assumptions based on other channels. So I don't need to necessarily know about selling mayonnaise into food service to know that that's a question I should ask. You know, who are the influencers and and how do they plan their requirements? But they need to be able to think like that, don't they? Yeah, and and even a level above that, which is understanding food and drink brands, is I think it's just understanding brands. Sure. It's really, really important. I think being empathetic towards how brands grow is vital because brands don't evolve in the same way as a software manufacturing business. It just, there is something a bit more organic about a brand and you can't force it as much. You've got to let it live a little bit. And so growing a brand just takes a little bit longer and requires more nurturing than other types of businesses. And so having an investor that understands what it is to grow a brand and what a brand means um, is also is also vital. What are the brands that are coming to you looking to use the money that they need for? And is it always the right thing? Just thinking about all the hundreds of meetings I've sat through, the the vast majority of the money they want to they want to spend on is on 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 
three areas. One of them is marketing. Just blanket, blanket marketing or particular marketing? This is, this is, this is where I think as an investor, you, you need to, as a good investor, you need to unpick that of what, what marketing really means. And, and I think the best founders, when they come to you, are the ones that have thought that through and gone and maybe even tested a few different types of marketing and, and worked out these are the things that work and I just need more money to really to really push it. Okay. I think it's quite that the word marketing is quite scary. You know, you can you know you can blow a lot of money very, very quickly on it. So marketing is one thing. And and you know, marketing is essential. I mean, you're driving rate of sale in grocery, for example, is expensive and very difficult. But really, if you want to build a good business through those channels, that's what you need to do. Um, this, the second thing is team. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about earlier about you know, di- different stages of growth, but it's really, really important to bring in a different caliber of people as you scale. So at Piper, we have, um, we think about it in three inflection points. Seven, 17 and 70. So at 7 million, 17 million and 70 million. Then it's not exact science, but actually it's scary how, how well that fits most of the time. The, those are inflection points at which the business needs to change. And it needs to change by um, thinking about uh, actually are the, the people that started the business the right ones to take it on to the next level? Most of the time, those people probably don't even want to you know, grow big businesses. Um, are the systems the same or the right, right for the business now? Um, is the culture the same or does, does it need to be changed? There are so many different things that change as you scale. And so the, the money that people want to raise will, will help them enact some changes. Okay, so marketing in, in inverted commas, right? Not necessarily always uh, the right types of marketing or they haven't necessarily always tested it. So I suppose anyone listening to this, if they want to come and, and kind of blow your socks off, they could come to you with a really specific plan where they have tested exactly what type of marketing works for them. And they're saying, this is how much money I want. And I know exactly what I'm going to spend it on. I'm going to spend it on these three things that work really well, which are going to drive brand growth for me. And you'll sit there kind of go, wow, that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that rarely happens. You've got to be realistic, isn't it? You know, an e-commerce business is easier to show that. Sure. There are some really clear KPIs because you can, you know, whether it's Facebook or Google Analytics, it will give you that kind of data. With more product-based businesses, it is it is much more intangible. So, you know, we're not fooling ourselves. It has to be like exact science. But no. at least there's been a lot of thinking that's gone into it. Thinking about it. And they'll also have thought about uh, what people they're going to need to help them uh, drive that growth to the next stage. And they'll have be thinking about it in advance of the growth curve. Mm. This is all in the perfect world. <clears throat> but, you know, they could they could at least have thought about it, right? And what's the third thing? Well, the third thing is it, it, it depends on the stage of business you're at. So earlier stage businesses, this won't happen in because people won't give them money for their for their shares. But at our stage, actually, we do a lot of what we call kind of cashing out. So we actually buy equity from the business and, and give them cash cash in return. And I personally think that's actually really important um you know if you've got a five ten million pound business and you're about to receive a big amount big investment and you're about to you know really um really turbocharge the growth i think it's really important to have to be de-risked in your personal life so you're really all of your focus is on growing the business and not about coming home to bills and mortgages and thinking oh my god what if this goes wrong and i've got nothing to show for it actually the right level of risk is really important. So you've broken your back for, what, three, five, ten years, and you've paid yourself next to nothing or maybe 35 grand or maybe 50 grand a year in, in recent years. And you're thinking, if I'm going to do this big deal, Jesus Christ, excuse my language, I need something out of this myself. You know, I just need to take the pain away for a while, right? Yeah, I, you know, and it can be anything from, you know, a couple of hundred thousand to maybe a million, not too much. So it kind of demotivates you. You know, we don't want people going sitting on Bahamas, but you know, the enough to kind of feel comfortable. Okay. So they bring you guys into the business. You you get on great and they have you they've either wowed you with their business plan and what they what they're going the type of growth they're going to drive and and the cost involved at driving that and or you've helped them. You've told me that you you really help businesses craft that. 
and you've decided on how much you're going to get in the mix for, yeah? Why would a business want to give some of their business away, some of their equity away? How could that be a good thing? Well, uh, I think the easiest way to, to, to think about it is would, do those founders want, you know, the whole, the whole cake, but the cake is smaller? Mm-hmm. Or do they want a slightly smaller slice of a much bigger cake? And that's, what, that's the kind of calculation you need to, you need to make in your head. And that some people are very, very guarded. And they're like, no, I just want to do this all to my, for myself. But the reality is you might end up with 100% of the business, but it'll be a much smaller business. And, and actually your stake is worth way less. Your 100% is worth way less than perhaps your 60% stake in, in a business that's been funded. That makes sense. I'm, I'm kind of imagining any of the entrepreneurs I know who've done really, really well. They tend to like to do things their own way and not be told how to do things. They they have a gut feel and they have a good brain and they kind of know what they want to do. How do you guys work with those kinds of entrepreneurs? Because surely the successful ones are quite like that. So how does it work in terms of, I mean, do you have monthly meetings or, you know, quarterly meetings where you're really getting involved in the decisions or do you just let them at it? I think it starts earlier in that when you are building the relationship with, with, with investors, it's really important to work out whether you subscribe to the same vision and you have the same way of doing business. My recommendation to founders is reach out to founders early. Don't do a don't do what the corporate finance guys want you to do, which is this kind of big auction and you go, you know, have one or two management presentations and you have to decide on, you know, who you want to get married to for the next five years. Don't do that speed dating. Get to know your get to know the investors over a long period of time, even if you're not ready for it. You know, you'd be very upfront. It's like, we're not ready for investment. Maybe we're too small for you. We meet lots of small brands all okay. the time. And just go like, this is what we're all about. And actually over the course of years, you kind of do your your due diligence, the bit of diligence, which is, I think, crucial, which is, can you work with that person or can you work with those founders? And so it come, when it comes to the point where actually there's the perfect storm of the business is the, is the right size and, and doing, um, doing well, so we, we want to invest. The founder has actually got to a stage where he's very happy to bring a partner on board. You've got your relationship is strong enough that actually – you don't need to work out whether you want to do a deal with them. You, you already know it. And so I think that flirting pre-investment, which might, you know, might go on for years, is, is, is really important. I think that's one of the, the biggest takeouts of this for me, because I know so many companies who all of a sudden need the money and then go out there looking for the money and time is ticking and they know they've only got enough cash to burn to get them to July. And all of a sudden they're spending all their senior management time on pitching. And, you know, even if they meet someone who they think they can get into bed with, then there's the law, the lawyers, and there's the legal stuff and there's the regulatory stuff. All of their um, their energy is taken off running the day-to-day in the business. And you've got some very young, usually managers, looking after things that they, they didn't necessarily have full responsibility for before. And it can all get very stressful, right? Uh, so stressful. And, you know, I, I work... I won't lie. <laughs> a lot of the businesses we invest in have a little, have a tiny little blip or plateauing at, at the time when we invest or just after. It's something we, we try really hard to avoid. But in reality, these are young businesses where the founder or the found, founders are so important to the business that them being away from it, them taking their eye off the ball, just does have an impact on yeah. on, on the. Um, and so to avoid that, that's what corporate finance people do. You know, that, that's their role. And actually, yes, they cost money, but actually they can really help with the heavy lifting, which means that the business can carry on um, as, as it was. Um, the, the, the other way of doing it is perhaps having a chairman who's done it before, who almost acts as a, as a kind of corporate finance advisor. Okay. Maybe that chairman is also an angel investor who could help you through that process. I think I think that's the thing. It's it's managing your own expectations that if you're going to go into fund into looking for external funding, you're going to be away from the business no matter you know how well you know. Maybe you've built the relationship with someone like you guys for for years. You're still going to be out of the business for quite a while, aren't you? Yeah. And you've got to have the right people in place in the business. 
while you're while you're away and maybe even into your business plan, you know, look at writing down your growth expectations for a quarter or half a year. Yeah. Uh, having a really strong person in finance is really important for something like this. Mm. And perhaps somebody who is, is is great at bookkeeping and has been really good at kind of running the day to day is maybe not that person. So where I've seen where businesses perhaps can't afford a financial director or a CFO, they've actually brought that as somebody senior and experienced in for maybe one day a week. Yeah, great idea. Just help them, you know, get the business ready. Okay. So let's imagine you they, they've been through that period and they've signed up with with someone like you guys and it's all it's it looks like it's going to be a great relationship. How does the relationship then how do you work with them going forward? Or how does and you know not necessarily always speaking about Piper but just in general how does it happen? So all investors will ex- expect there to be a board and some businesses, especially kind of the more kind of millennial founders who have probably grown up with more business podcasts and business books and advice, and actually they start doing board meetings really early on, and their, their governance is probably almost better. Um, so I, I, we've seen that that change happen. But whether businesses had a board or they had a kind of unofficial board where a couple of them got together or not. Um, Post investment, the board, the board governance is much, much more important. So, m- most investors will expect you to have a chairman, a kind of non non executive chairman, who is somebody who has d- been there and done that in the industry or the channel, and can be the the kind of third wheel of the board. You have your investors, you have your founders and management team, and you have your chairman. And some is a kind of wise owl that that everybody trusts. Should that be someone who's also been through a company sale, sold a company or been involved in a sale? Preferably, preferably. Yeah. Or, or I mean, even getting funding rather than going whole hog. You know, a lot of the times they are, the best ones are people, are those that have been CEOs in the past. Yeah. Have grown big businesses and have now become chairman. Now, good CEOs don't always make good chairman. And sometimes it takes a while for a CEO to become a good chairman because they have to be non-exec and they're used to being exec. So sure. they just need to work out how to, how to let go. So I think some, a lot of time we like to have to bring in chairman who've already been chairman before because they've gone through that education process. Um, founders typically don't make good chairman or chairs, I should, I should say. Founders are very, very rarely, are they, have they got the same skill set of what, what makes a good, a good chair? So if I'm looking for a chair for my business, what kind of qualities am I looking for? So quite as somebody who listens, you know, this is quite, quite, quite basic, but actually really, really important. Someone who, who, who listens, who kind of ruminates and will help you get to the decision yourself. Right. I, I, I think about it as, as almost inception. Okay. You know, best chairman can plant the seed. A bit like a good coach. A bit like a good coach, yeah. But I think, especially with founders where there is... The, you know, they, they want they want to feel like they're doing it themselves and they're making those decisions. A good chairman won't tell you what to do. They'll kind of ask the right questions and plant the seeds so you can make the right decision yourself. Okay. So you have your chairman, you have your board, and you start working with an institutional investor like Piper. How often am I going to see you guys? And how involved are you going to get in the month-to-month running of the business? So... We're not operators and you know, no investor is an operator. And to be honest, it would be a scary thing if they were because it would definitely lead to uh, to lead the business in the wrong direction. But I think where the, the best founders and so the, the best investors are the ones that provide the strategic advice at board level. And and most of the time, those are that involves monthly board meetings. And what do you mean by strategic advice at board level? Give us some concrete examples of the kind of things where the institutional investor would be able to actually add value. So it's quite hard, because I get this question quite a lot, it's sometimes quite hard to pinpoint exactly. But the at, at board level, it, it's very important to not talk about kind of the nitty gritty of the everyday of the business. And, and sometimes that that takes quite quite a big change because founders and management teams are used used to doing that. It's about talking about the big issues 
or the big questions fa- facing facing the business. Like, for example, we've been in online business since inception, and could we also grow in store? Yeah. Because that's happening quite a bit now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Or should we hire this person? Or what should the team look like? Actually, you know, is it about a commercial direction, marketing direction? Or actually, is it what's what different formats? Um, you know, is it about should we invest in um, somebody to help us think about the brand, do a brand workshop? Should we? You know, there, there are so many of these questions, but they they are bigger questions that you need to leave to the board. And the most important thing about to make the board run really well is about having a really really good board pack. And we spend you know, my colleagues and I spend a lot of time making the board pack look very. It, m- let the board pack do a lot of the work for you. What's a board pack for people who don't know? A board pack is, uh, I'm getting very, very detailed here now, but a, a board pack is something that the management team sends around a few days before the board so that everybody who's coming to the board reads it. And it gives you all the information that you might need for for those discussions. You mean what we all do before every meeting that we would have with our team, uh, Right. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is the Jeff Bezos way of uh, doing. Yeah, sure. I, th- I thought everybody did that. <laughs> okay, so that's a board pack. So a good board pack is really important. So you guys are going to, you know, be involved in these board meetings, yeah, because you're shareholders. But you're not going to be involved in the day to day operations or weekly or monthly operations. You're just going to be helping make helping the founder and the rest of the board make key decisions. Yeah. Yeah, so so at board level, there are certain questions that will arise. If, for example, you know, the question's around digital strategy or it's around brand or customer, and whoever the non-exec from the investor who's on, on, on the board isn't perhaps the expert in that, then other people within Piper will then step in and work with the relevant person to try and help them help them with that question. Okay. So at Piper, we actually we have two non-execs on every not non-executive directors on every board. One is more financially minded. One is more kind of brand customer minded. So we try and have both sides of the brain, which is, I think is a, is a really important balance. So your every decision you're com- coming at it from 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 both perspectives. So I'm really aware of the fact that we've only got ten minutes left of your time before you've got to run off. I wanted to just look at some of the myths around funding. Um, and getting investment and, you know, venture capitals are going to, venture capitalists are going to bleed you dry and, you know, never give away any of your company and all those myths that are out there. What are the myths that you come across the most often that we could dispel very quickly? Uh, there were all horrible, greedy, nasty, uh, nasty people that just want to take the businesses and take you know, get all the money, all the assets out of them, asset strip and, and move on. So it's not always like that. Well, I think that's why I spent quite a lot of time at Piper. I, we used to be called Piper Private Equity. I, I did actually take private equity out, out of our name on purpose because I think that was the connotations with, with private equity. The, rea- the reality is that you know, investors are driven by creating valuable assets in a very, in a very crude way. And we're, you know, unlike the the kind of hedge fund guys, you know, we're, we're incentivized over a really long period of time to create valuable businesses. We're not, we're not kind of short selling. This is, you know, where were these businesses for five years, sometimes six or seven years. That is a real, that's a real marriage. Sure. You know, you know life is short. So you need to have a really good working relationship and you need to drive real value in these businesses for, for, for investors to make money and for the founders to make money. So, it's about aligned interests, and I would say there is a, there are lots of, I think there are lots of good investors, investors out there who genuinely want to create really great businesses. Okay, I've got another one for you. Uh, another thing I hear a lot is, well, why don't you just do some crowdfunding? Yeah, crowdfunding has become really, really popular, especially in in, in consumer and, and in food and drink. Primarily because when I've spoken to CrowdCube and Cedars in the past, they um they say about 80% of their crowd are n- not kind of professional investors or people that haven't really don't really know how to invest. And so you've got an amateurish base of people investing and that's fine. Um, and it's especially fine as if you want to get a great valuation for your business. 
but it becomes a little bit more complicated further down the line. So firstly, you don't get, most of the time, you don't get very much added value or any added value with it. What you're stuck with is a real big shareholder base. And the the really high valuation actually is really, really unhelpful for future institutional investors. It, it, it makes it really hard for people like us to come in later down the line because um, the valuation bar has been set so high. Tell me, so I thought that last week or the week before I saw some uh, plant-based company got two million, raised two million quid. I don't know if that was dollars or or so, so many things going through my LinkedIn feed that I only skim read everything. But two million quid, a lot of money for a startup, I think, I think with not very much distribution or not huge amount in the market. What happens then in terms of they've got all this money from all these people that they don't necessarily know? How do they provide a return to those people further on down the line? And how do those people, how can those people be sure that they're going to actually get a return? I mean, it's massively risky. I mean, I to be honest, I think the awe around crowdfunding has slightly dissipated over the years. Yeah. And there are, there have been success stories. Um, I, I didn't actually do this, but a few of my colleagues invested in uh, Camden Town Brewery, you know, and they kind of doubled their money in, in a year. But that, I mean, that story, it was so, so rare. Okay. There'd be very few exits. And so, I mean, we invested in our first crowdfunded business. Mindful Chef was, was actually um, crowdfunded. Um, and so that, that worked absolutely fine. But I would say vast majority of people investing in crowdfunded businesses have never seen a return. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. So what about myths around driving growth? I mean, what, when people come to you with these business plans, are the business plans hugely overinflated in terms of, you know, turnover projections? Are they more or less on track with what you would imagine that business could drive? So when, when we start working with a business, and, and a lot of time, if we've got a great relationship with starting even pre-investment, we, we spend a lot of time helping them build out a business plan, a kind of a realistic business plan one that doesn't put kind of unrealistic pressure on the founders to build this enormous business in a few years, which just doesn't happen. And one of the, one of the main things that I think we end up scaling back is, is kind of international ambitions. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is because actually it's really hard to grow international businesses, really, really hard. And actually, if you sit back and think about what, Internet, what food and drink brands, UK food and drink brands, have got, uh, done really, really well internationally? Goo, chocolate puds. Yeah, Innocent. Yeah. But, but you know, it's it's a small fever tree. You know, it's a small handful, right? It of is. all the brands. It is really, really difficult and really, really expensive. And so what happens is founders typically get loads of inbound from distributors and from uh, from people in various countries going, love what you do, can I distribute a brand? And, you know, the course of a couple of years, they end up building, you know, an okay business. It's kind of, you know, it's uh, it's all profit for them. They have like 42 diff- distributors in different countries bring in a million revenue. Great. You know, for a small business, you almost, you'd be a foolish to say no to it. Yeah. But... When, you're, when you've suddenly got investment and you're really thinking strategically about what's going to drive value in this business, then you really have to think about where should I put my limited resources to work? And that's when you realize, actually, you know, building out a great business in Germany is really expensive. So if you want to do that, then you kind of have to abandon all the other territories and really focus on finding the best distributor you know, and really backing those people on the ground in in those in that country to, to make it work, and and it's not just that it's expensive in terms of money, but it's hugely expensive in terms of senior management time, isn't it? Because you can't just send, you know, somebody inexperienced out into the field and not they're going to come to you pretty much every week with huge decisions that you have to make around, you know, which holier are we going to use? Do we need a field sales team, and how much is that going to cost? Do we need an office? We're probably going to need to incorporate a business here because of that or whatever it is. And they're really big decisions that a junior can't make, right? So your your energy and mental space is going to be taken away from your home business where you're making most of your turnover to a, a part of the world where you're not actually making much money yet. Isn't that right? Completely. Um, so I think in growing a, a brand internationally, if you can do it, drives incredible value. 
but it's about doing it in the right way and making sure you don't put at risk of a domestic market, which should still be your strongest. Okay. I think the, the other misconception is about um, how profitable your business can be or actually how profitable the business should be. Interesting. They're actually two different things. There are some founders who come in with the with these projections that, you know, this lovely, this lovely graph that shows that, you know, in year three, year four, year five, actually, you know, turnover is going to go through the roof. And then suddenly you're going to start, start making 20% EBITDA margins, company EBITDA margins, which from everything that we've ever seen is just unrealistic because mm-hmm. the complexity of the business of that sky is just um, becomes uh, harder and harder to manage. And you start bringing in more senior people and processes and systems. And so part of it is just working out what is a realistic profitability of that business? Well, what is realistic? I mean, I know that's a massive question, but what is realistic in terms of let's look at EBITDA in, let's just say, food um, and beverage. Okay, And I know they're they're slightly different, but food EBITDA, what is the average in, in food for EBITDA for a company that is between five to 10 years old? Um, I think it's hard in terms of age, but in terms of size, I think as you go bigger, you should become more profitable. That that, that definitely That's should happen one. unless you're doing something wrong. But um, and when we look at valuing businesses, we because the businesses we look at are typically not profitable at the stage we get involved in, we look at proxies for bigger businesses. So we go, okay, so let's find a similar business that actually turns over 50 million. What profits are they at? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the time, they're probably hovering around 10%, sub 10% company EBITDA. And so you can apply that to the current business and say, okay, let's try and work out valuation based on that. Um, but very few businesses, unless you're like a ridiculous scale and your Coke, you know, can get above 10%, maybe 15% company EBITDA. So you might be looking at hoping for 10% of EBITDA and then you're hoping for if you're re- doing really well over 40 at gross margin, right? Yeah, I think I, I think if you're in your 40s in terms of gross margin, I think you're doing really, really well. I mean, you're doing something special in terms of manufacturing, processes, your proposition. Or direct-to-consumer channel stuff. Yeah. In your 30s, I think you're doing well. And we're talking about food drink brands going into kind of grocery channels. In your 20s, it's hard. You know, mm-hmm. that's when you've got so little margin to play with. It's something that um, just doesn't allow you to then spend money on marketing. Okay. And direct consumer brands, yeah, I mean, with direct consumer brands, hopefully you should be spending, you should be getting maybe higher margins than that. You can go up to 50 or 60%. But that extra margin is, is then being spent on digital marketing. At least with okay. food and drink brands, products, the grocers are doing the marketing for you because they're on their shelves. You have to spend that extra margin on Facebook, Google, ads, which are increasingly really, really expensive. Mm. I can imagine a lot of people smiling when they hear you say the grocers are doing the marketing for you, but we won't, we <laughs> won't, we won't get into that. We won't get into that here. That's a, no. that's a, that's it for another day. Listen, my key takeouts of this are that if you're of particular size where you're looking for a big wad of cash to drive your business to the next stage and you're going out there looking for an institutional investor, you should be going with a plan that is really realistic in terms of your turnover, okay? And you should have sense-checked that in terms of not only how big could we be, but from what you've said, what is the effort necessary for me as a founder and my team in order to be that big? Because we won't be able to achieve those turnover levels if it's not realistic. That's the first thing, yeah, that you've said. The second thing is come to you or anyone like you guys with some well-thought-out Um, ways in which you need to spend the money to drive that growth and have even tested some of the marketing activities that you know will drive you the most growth. That's the second thing. And the third thing is choose wisely, choose your partner wisely. And actually, there's a fourth thing. You will probably be able to choose them wisely because you have spent time getting to know them over years. So don't be afraid to come and meet people like you early on. Is Is that a good summary of all of the important things that you've certainly taught me today? Very well summarized here. Yeah, spot on, spot on. And I think it's about being real. One of the other things about being realistic, I think we sometimes we go to meetings where they they show us these incredible growth projections, which are just so scary. And I think the appetite, and we'll be spending quite a lot of time speaking to VCs, the appetite 
for loss, heavily loss-making businesses amongst the investor community is just going away. Okay. Even, you know, Andreas Horowitz, the big Silicon Valley, you know, investors, they're going, I don't want to invest in loss-making businesses anymore. Direct consumer loss-making businesses anymore. Been burnt too much. And so we've always we've always grown businesses to be profitable. And I think that's going to be the new norm. How can you create sustainable businesses that have a business model that can be profitable? And let's add to that, because you have just reminded me of the other really important factor, which is find an investor who's done it before, who understands what it would take to sell one more unit of what you're selling, because otherwise, how can they add value for you, right? Listen, it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you today. Thank you so much. I really had no idea that, you know, uh, there was investors, investment funds out there who could actually help a brand drive the branded side of their business and really understand that. Uh, so thank you so much. It's been it's been really eye opening. We enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks a million, Yasha. Yasha, welcome back. It's been quite a few months since we recorded the original episode, the episode we just heard. How are you doing and how is COVID-19 affecting what you do at Piper? Thank you. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> so much has changed. Apart from wearing shorts and a t-shirt for the last few weeks, we've been spending a huge amount of our time supporting our current portfolio brands. Sure. Because we invest across consumer. Some are doing incredibly well. You know, the more digitally minded businesses such as Mindful Chef or Bloom and Wild, Neon, mouse, doing really, really well. Demand is great. But obviously, more of kind of our hospitality, boutique fitness brands are definitely suffering. So, a lot of the landlord and bank uh, negotiations taking place. Yeah, so difficult. So, what, in terms of, you know, the meat and bones of your industry, which is fundraising and investment and helping brands on that journey, what's actually happening with that right now? Is anybody doing anything or has it all stopped? I think most investment houses will be currently talking about the opportunities that are going to come out of this period. Okay. There's going to be a real churn in brands, in how consumers are behaving. And so there will clearly be opportunities to invest cheaper Mm -hmm. and probably in businesses that you might not have otherwise had the opportunity to invest. Is that a nice way of saying also, though, that they're not actually looking at doing it right now? Exactly. So I think that's all good and well, but it all comes down to the risk appetite of the investor. Mm -hmm. And I would be surprised if there are many investments that will take place during this time in more consumer facing businesses. So if you're a fast growing food or beverage branded business and you were just about to get on the funding investment train or indeed you were thinking about doing it, what would you be doing now? I mean, I presume, obviously, you're looking at safeguarding your core business. You're looking at flexing your strategy to make sure that you can serve new consumer needs in new ways or, you know, original consumer needs in different ways. But what should you be thinking in terms of your funding or investment journey? What happens to that? Do you put it on pause or do you keep we talked about flirting with investors early on. What should you be doing? So I, I've had a lot of conversations with smaller food and drink brands, and some of whom I've actually been on that journey with an investor investors and, and have had to you know stop suddenly. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you keep those relationships and liaise with them in the right way, I think there'll definitely be opportunities to rekindle that. But I think right now, most investors will be focusing on their current portfolio investments okay. and really trying to work out how this is all going to play out. From the kind of angel perspective, so small levels of investment, you know, the angels are really retrenching. If you think about, you know, the, these are people, just not ordinary people with their own money to play with. Some of their money will be in, in stocks and shares, some of their money will be in property, they'll become a, have a diversified portfolio. They will naturally be suffering in one or two of those areas. And so their appetite for investing will be will be less. The crowd funders, Cedars and CrowdCube said they're open for, for business, but obviously their crowd is angels and you know, normal people. So I question their appetite to invest in certain types of businesses. At the institutional level, I think that's where it's the, probably going to be the most difficult to, to do any deals. I think from a kind of practical perspective, it's really important to spend time with the team and to see the operations and that you just can't you can't do that over Zoom. Sure. And then you know just trying to work out how long this is going to last for, 
and the impact on different channels is just too uncertain at this time. So basically, are we saying that if you are in that position, you shouldn't feel bad about putting it on the back burner, keeping the relationship alive, but knowing that it doesn't mean that it's all dead and gone. You can rekindle that and you should really be hunkering down and focusing on making sure that you've got the right strategy in place to deal with the consumer needs and pain points as they are right now. Yeah. You know, for investors, team is the most, I think one of the most important things that they'll, they'll look at. And how a founder and their team responds to crises like this is a great test. Sure. And so both of how they respond to the changing shift in consumer demand and the channels through which consumers are, are buying, and also how they respond to having to furlough all their staff, how they make sure they keep up the team culture, how they change the way that they sell the product itself. All of those things are really, really important. And actually, if you keep your investors up to date with everything that's going on, at the end of it, I think it will be actually a much stronger relationship. Yeah, it's a real opportunity to show them that you are very good at all of those things and potentially up the value of the esteem that they have for you in terms of how you've managed that. That's great insight. So let's talk about then what these businesses should actually be doing. I mean, obviously, they're looking at their everyday business and they're looking at how they can keep their revenues going or how they can keep up with demand if they're lucky. What are you recommending? What advice are you giving to the businesses that you're working with in terms of what they should be focusing on right now? So within food and drink, I guess the vast majority of food and drink brands will have distribution through a variety of channels. Right now, unsurprisingly, online and direct to consumer is booming. And actually, I'll I'll place Amazon in, in that bucket as well. So brands I'm speaking to, and actually brands like Mindful Chef that we're invested in, that have a very strong digital approach, are doing exceptionally well right now. Um, those with a kind of more multi-channel approach, obviously the direct-to-consumer is doing really well. Mm-hmm. Those that kind of have grocery exposure, a lot of that is actually doing really well. But things like food service and on-trade, hospitality, that side of things is, is really hurting. Sure. So some of them are kind of balanced out, all those just distribution channels um, and, and some have actually you know have taken this as a as a nudge to think about actually what kind of business do we want to be mm-hmm. and where do we want to sell and actually have, have seen the light in, in selling direct to consumers which I think founders and and teams love yeah much absolutely more. You know, they speak directly to customers rather than kind of being a b2b business where they sell to a supermarket yeah. who then sells on their behalf and they have no control over it And you're the brand specialist at Piper. So, you know, obviously that means that you are focused on the consumer or the customer. What do you think in terms of the behaviours, the new behaviours and attitudes that we're seeing in our own lives every day, but also in the greater population? What do you think we're going to take forward with us into the new normal, as they call it, and into the after the new normal, whatever that'll be called? What do you imagine we're going to take with us? I think there is a real desire at the moment to trial new things. Right. And um, coupled with a desire to support smaller independent brands. Mm -hmm. And so I see that as an opportunity to create new relationships and loyalties that perhaps wouldn't come around otherwise. I think people are very open-minded about new new products. And, And so this is a real opportunity to establish those relationships through Amazon, through your own websites. I'm seeing great examples of, of brands pushing those channels. I think they, a lot of people are skeptical of that, about Amazon, but I think it is a, is it a fantastic uh, brand building platform if sure. you do it properly. And like with anything, you really need to understand how to do it properly. Uh, we use Amazon experts, consultants to help in all of our brands to make sure that the way the brand appears, the way it speaks, you know, whether it's seller or vendor, how you how you actually sell the goods, all of those things, it's really important to get right. Okay. Because each of these things is a profession and a discipline unto itself, isn't it? And I think that's what people don't realise, you know, when they start potentially um, either whether it's building their own website or doing their own social media or launching on Amazon, you can do it all yourself. But unless you have a huge team, sometimes you have to bring in experts from the outside, at least at the beginning. Yeah, and and actually, most food and drink brands are not digitally minded. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of they've started with a with a focus on let's get stocked by Tesco or Sainsbury's. Mm. I know, I know. And so they just they they haven't grown up thinking in that way. Yeah, I think there is definitely a new breed that 
is much more natural to them. And actually with being forced to make that switch, actually they found that it's really kind of within, within their skill set, but they haven't perhaps hired a team which thinks in that way. Yeah. So I think changing channels of distribution isn't just about you know, putting your products on those channels. I think it, it's also about an internal culture. It's about how you think and where you dedicate your resources as well. So that's really important to get right. So what any one piece of advice that you'd give to any of our listeners, founders who are, you know, on track to being the next insurgent brands are already doing really, really well and are having a little bit of a blip right now. What would you be saying to them? My experience of founders is that they are unbelievably positive despite anything that's, that's thrown at them. Uh, you, you would think that everyone would kind of crumble in these times, but they, I'm, I'm always amazed at in the conversations I have where so many of them are seeing opportunities at this. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would agree with them. There are lots of painful things that are happening right now, but I think see the opportunities to reorientate your business. If I, if I think about what was happening pre-COVID, is that supermarkets were already consolidating their, their ranges, yeah. the number of brands that they were stocking. And some of them are using COVID now as an excuse to do that even faster. So I think the grocery is not going to be a channel for discovering new products and brands moving forward. It's going to be a channel for bigger, more established brands. I think they're getting worse and worse at that because they're just not making enough money to sustain that. So I think it's about just challenging yourself and thinking, where is the best place to to do that brand building? Where can I form those really long-lasting loyal relationships with customers? And it's not just about, about the supermarkets. I mean, our farm shops are having an amazing time right now. You know, all the kind of the pubs turning into, into farm shops. From, from the research we've done, consumers are increasingly fragmenting where they buy things, where they buy their food and drink. And so it kind of started where people went from just buying in Sainsbury's or Waitrose to buying also in Aldi and Lidl. Yeah. And I think that's just happening more and more where you know, they get their meat boxes from this brand, they get their you know, veg boxes from this specialist brand, you know, they get their pasta from here, they get their, co- their coffee from here. And I think you know, being clever in how you set yourself up for that is really important. Thinking about subscription, how do you make subscribing really Absolutely. easy? Because actually, from a consumer perspective, having all these different places to buy from, it's actually really complicating time consuming. It is. It is. As a mum, especially homeschooling, homeworking mum, I have so many local businesses I want to support, but I don't have the time to log onto their websites and enter all my details. And actually, one of the things I was thinking, you know, there, there's a real opportunity here, I'm sure, in every neighbourhood for someone to say, look, I'll pay you 30 quid to sign me up for the following things and, my, you know, assign a rubber person. Because there are so many things. I, I do want to. I'm passionate about wanting to have my eggs delivered. So maybe we'll have layers of new professions in, in the middle of this as well. Exactly. I mean, it's interesting. There, there's some brands in the US who, whose whole distribution has been direct to consumer where you can order um, just through text message. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, like in China so, as well. And, you know, WhatsApp is becoming very, very popular. And so I think increasingly being able to just reorder things in that kind of really simple... Quick way, exactly. Quick way, I think yeah. will um, we'll definitely catch you on over time. Yeah. Well, look, Yasha, thank you so much for coming back and giving us an update. Um, wishing you the best of luck in the next few months and very much. year to come. And yeah, it's been great. It's been really useful and helpful. So thank you for all of your time. Thank you, Fiona. Always a pleasure.